The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Thanks so much, Mel, for leading us in worship, the worship team. It is uh, good to be able to have the Winnipeg Somong Presbyterian Church folk with us today. And um, this uh, tradition goes back a long ways, I think nine, eight, nine years now. And uh, they have been part of uh, being in the building that we've had. They've moved with us from 201 Skirfield here. And uh, we, we've been involved in uh, ministry together, especially with Bolivia, uh, joint mission trips. And uh, we're just grateful for that. And speaking of Bolivia, it wasn't mentioned earlier in the announcement, but the day uh, for the applications to be handed in for that Bolivia trip in February is uh, September 16th, so that's two weeks from tomorrow. So if you've been praying and thinking on that, please uh, please uh, fill out that application and hand it in. We had an information evening in, in July. If you didn't get to that, you want to know more, come and talk to Pat or myself. We'd love to talk to you about the mission trip to Bolivia. And we're so grateful as well for ministry to children, and I'm so grateful for what happened this past week. It was just wonderful to have a lot of enthusiasm in this building uh, during the week, and that was great. Not that the staff aren't enthusiastic during the week, but not quite as much as the children. So. I want to know, you to know as well that the next two Sundays are, are critical Sundays. If you are kind of on the, the fringe, you're looking for a church home, and you think this might be it, um, the next two Sundays are kind of a vision, ministry plan, casting Sundays. Uh, September 8 and 15, we will be talking about the ministry plans for the coming year. And in that also, we'll be sharing with you really how we see ministry as a church uh, in, in involved, how we, how we unpack what discipleship really looks like, how we're all growing to be disciples that follow Christ. And so in the next two Sundays, um, I, I'd encourage you to check, check that out if you're interested in here. And then on September 22nd, in three Sundays, is when we begin our new sermon series for the entire year, and we will be going through the book of Genesis. And we do that because we believe that God's Word addresses head-on, directly, some of the biggest issues that our culture is confused about. And we believe that in the very opening chapters of Genesis, God is going to remind us of our moorings and remind us of the kind of people He's called us to be, and remind us of the timeless absolutes that God has not changed His mind about and that He calls us to live for. So I would encourage you to be prayerful about these things as well as uh, involve yourself as much and how often as you can. Now, some of you aren't, young enough, aren't old enough to, to remember this, but in 1993, the movie Jurassic Park came out. I know there's been a remake since then, but I uh, haven't seen it. So anyway, in, in that movie, there is a really interesting line. And it's happening when the chaos caused by the genetic engineering of uh, these prehistoric creatures takes place. And one of the scientists that is involved in this genetic engineering says the, this line, which I think is great. He says, we were so fascinated with what we could do that we didn't give any thought to what we should do. Wow. That'll preach. We were so fascinated with what we could do, we were not giving them enough thought to what we should do. And that is so in so many ways our generation. 
There seems to be no end to what we can do with science and technology. And with the erosion of some of the laws of our country, it is amazing how there's a fascination with what we can do with not enough thought of what we should do. It applies to us individually too as those who want to follow Jesus and live by His Word. Did you know that over 50 times in the Bible we are told to be careful? Over 50 times in the Bible it says be careful. And I guess the reason for that is because we are prone to being careless. We can be careless with our lives. And so we're called to carefulness. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Be careful how you live. When we lived in Bolivia for some years, we were told because of the altitude and because of the ozone layer that we had to be careful because exposed skin could burn in a very few minutes. 20 minutes, I think it was. And then we moved back to Canada a decade ago, and now we're told that 35 below and a wind chill of 45 with exposed skin could, could give you frostbite. I mean, the be careful challenge is out to us all in all kinds of ways. And when it comes to being careful, you know, there's no way of avoiding the fact that a lot of it comes down to how are we going to live self-controlled lives? Are we going to control our lives and be careful how, how we live? Now, why is it that self-control is the last of a series of nine fruit that are mentioned in this list? Some people suggest that the reason it's mentioned last is that it is a summation of all the virtue of the fruit that has been mentioned prior to this. That in some ways, I would maybe liken it to being like the operating system of all the rest of the fruit. That really, you cannot be truly agape loving if you do not have self-control. That you cannot be truly patient or kind or good if you do not have self-control. And so there's this, this last fruit mentioned because perhaps in some ways it is one of the most important because it somehow unlocks and enables the rest of them. Now the New Testament Greek word for this word, fruit of self-control, is ekratei. I can't pronounce it very well. But before I tell you what it is more and how it's used, I want to tell you what it's not and uh, clarify that. Timothy Keller says that, first of all, he he has a good comment. He says that self-control has to do with the ability to pursue the important over the urgent rather than being impulsive, which is a good description of self-control. You you can delay something. You can, you can see what's important, not just urgent, and you don't live impulsively. But interestingly enough, what it is not is very interesting. It is not a sheer willpower self-control. It is not a sheer willpower of character or of pride. Having to feel or be in control is not what the spiritual fruit of self-control is talking about. I remember speaking to a man one day who believed that anyone who ever struggles with anything obsessive or addictive is just a weak person. That's the way he sized it up. And he, 
He, there's no question that underneath that description, there was a real pride in his life that says, well, I, I, that's just stupid. I, I've never given in to that. That's not going to dominate my life. And you've known, all of you have known people who are this, this stubborn, strong-willed, determined, self-disciplined kind of people. That does not mean or equate to the spiritual fruit of self-control. You know it doesn't. You know intuitively that person is not a spirit-filled person. They just got a real stubborn, hard way of living it. They're rocks. Kind of like the poem that many of you will recognize a, a line or two from by William Ernest Henley called Invictus. Let me read it to you. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond the place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, that sounds like a very self-controlled, determined, self-willed person, doesn't it? Well, that's not the fruit of the Spirit, is it? The fruit of the Spirit is very different. Paul talks about another counterfeit of this fruit called self-control in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul is addressing a religious way, much like we were talking about during the series on Galatians and legalism. He was addressing the religious way that tries to live self-controlled lives just by putting all kinds of rules in place. He says things like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And he writes, he says, they're all based on human precept and teaching. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body. Severity to the body. And yet he adds this, he says, yet they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so, various counterfeits to this self-control. What, what is it that truly self-control means and how is it used in the Scripture? Just before I move on to that, let me just tell you one thing that happened this week that I think somehow God the Spirit might be putting on me as an illustration. I, in our backyard, we have a couple of apple trees and one of them every year is a mess to clean up. Because it's little yellow apples about the size of, of this size. I don't know how size for the tape. I don't know what to say. Uh, size of uh, a golf ball. Thank you. <laughs> and it's a mess. It's loaded. It's loaded. Branches bearing down. And then on the vine, on the branch yet, blight and rot starts to set in. They fall and they make the worst mess. Birds and the wasps might love them, but we get nothing out of them. So a couple of days ago, I sharpened my chainsaw, and I got out my ladder, and I just went crazy and took the whole thing down to just, you know, a spindly, 
that sort of suggests what John 15 says, that the, the vine dresser father will, will, will prune us back if we're not fruitful enough. So my hope is that this tree might even, if I cut enough branches off, produce bigger apples, bigger fruit that's useful, but less. I, I don't know. I'll let you know next year if that works. But what a scary thing, right? When you think of counterfeit fruit that we could live with the source being our own sinful flesh, not the Spirit of God, how scary it is to think that we can look so fruitful from a distance from Bison Drive. That tree looked really fruitful. But you got up close. It was rotten, blighty, small, and useless. I mean, we've even tried making applesauce out of it a couple of years ago, and it's just... You've got to add so much sugar, it's not worth it. I know some of you are going to come to me after and tell me, here's what you got to do. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Let's talk about this scripture that talks about self-control. First text that I want to share with you where this word is used is in Acts chapter 24. The Apostle Paul, if you can imagine this, he's before the governor Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And he is talking to him and defending the Christian faith. And in verse 25 of Acts 24, Paul reasons with him about three things. He reasons with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Do you know what Felix says in verse 25 after that? He says this, it says this. He says to Paul, go away from, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now just imagine this. There is the Apostle Paul telling this governor of the Roman of government saying, Here's, let me tell you about righteousness. Let me tell you about self-control and the coming judgment. You need to hear this. And he says, I, I don't want to hear it. I'll call you when I'm ready. Does that not sound like some people maybe you know? If you were to just pull out in, in some social environment one-on-one -on -one with somebody that you were talking to and start talking about what is your basis of righteousness before God? What are you depending on to be right with the Father, God? Or if you were to pull out the subject of self-control and, and the, the, the ways that that person might gratify the flesh and live a, a pleasurable life only. Or if you were to talk about the coming judgment that one day they're going to stand before the Lord, do you think that they're going to sit around and listen if they're not bent that way? No, they're going to say, I'll call you when I want to talk about that. That's, what, that's what one of the first mentions of this word, self-control. Another one is in 1 Corinthians 9.25. An athlete running a race, Paul says, if you're going to run the race, you need to go into strict training, which requires self-control. But Christian life is not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. It requires self-control. In 1 Corinthians 7, the word is used for anyone that is in a premarital relationship. That is, that if you're not yet married and you, you have another one that you're getting to know and you think the Lord is calling you together, the, 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 the Word of God, Paul says in this Scripture, if you're in that kind of relationship, you will need self-control to be sexually pure and enter marriage. The world around you says, what's the big idea? What's the big deal? Why wait until marriage? The Bible says, learn self-control. God calls us to that. Titus chapter 1, the qualities of pastors and church leaders, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Those are a list of four of the qualifications. Same kind of passage in 1 Timothy 3, talking to pastors. 
And he says, Paul says in verse 5, that he must manage his own household well. If someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how can he take care of God's church? Ouch. Every time I read that passage, I have to think, okay, how am I living a self-controlled life? Be careful. And then 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Over and over again, the New Testament reminds us to live self-controlled lives. There's a real enemy. There are many strong temptations out there. There is a desire in each one of us to live pleasurable and leisurable and gaming and amusement-oriented lives in all kinds of ways that are personally gratifying, some of which are, are legitimate and fine in their measure, and some of which may not be. And somehow we have to learn, God, what is it that a Godward life looks like And what is it that is gifted to us by the Father above for our enjoyment in its measure and place so that we can live yet self-controlled, godly lives? Have you ever had the prompting? Seriously, have you ever had the prompting when you're on social media and the Spirit of God just says, you've had enough of that. Why don't you open the Bible? I have tons of times. Have you ever had the prompting when you're you're watching TV and, and all of a sudden God just says, hey, could you just take... Shut it off. Let's pray. Let's talk. I mean, that's self-control. The ability to say no to something and yes to something better. In its time and measure. I'm not talking about living some kind of guilt-oriented life. This is not legalism. (laughs) This is a God-filled, Spirit-filled life. And of course, in the Old Testament, self-control is found in many places, especially the Proverbs. I love Proverbs 25-28, it says, A man without self-control is like a city broken down without its walls. And you know that in ancient times, if a city did not have walls, they were victimized by every surrounding raiding party. And so self-control is a very important scripture or concept. I'd like to just comment now as we have a little bit of time on the passage of scripture that was used all week as the theme verse for our, our children's ministry, VBS. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have it down, you want to look at it. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're not going to stand and read it, but I'm going to comment as we go through it. Peter is talking here in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. And he says that something that is intuitively known by us because we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of your ability to live a Christian life. It's the fruit of God's Spirit. So he starts by saying in verse 3 that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now how does it that God has granted to us all things that we need for a godly life? He says, through the knowledge of Him who called us. We're going to come back to that word knowledge. And he says in verse 4 that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by sinful desire. So, So we actually made a partaker of the divine nature. This is one of the reasons why I believe that when some people and and counselors discuss 
sin and they talk about the Christian as though they have two natures that are warring against each other inside us, that is bad theology. Because we have one nature. We, we have been crucified with Christ. We have been born again of a new nature. And that new nature, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. That new nature is the divine nature. We've made, been made partakers of the divine nature. And though we can still sin as we live in this body and in the flesh, the sin principle still lives in us, we have been set free and given a new nature. And our true selves, our new selves, are meant to live and follow this incredible God-spirit, Christ-character-producing force that lives within us. And so we read in the Scriptures that, that this is the way to glorify God, is that we've become partakers of the divine nature. That's the only way you're going to escape the corruption that's in this world and in your own body, is by living by this divine nature. Now, Peter is not just talking about something that's downloaded from God. He's talking also about our engagement with that, our responsibility in that. And so he goes on to talk about the source of the Christian life and our ability to access that. We're not passive in it. And that's why I go back to this word knowledge, through our knowledge of Him. It's not just the word knowledge, it's a experiential knowledge. It's epignosis. And this idea of experiential knowledge is, is really not just theory and doctrine and teaching about the Christian faith. It's your knowledge of having talked to God this morning when you got up. It's your knowledge of actually applying in the hard moments some of the Scripture that you have been reading. It's your moment of having a real test of your love for someone and finding that the Spirit of God gives you the fruit of love for that heart-to-love person. It's the ability to put your knowledge in action. So self-control has the two sides, the negative, where you're saying no to some things, and the positive where you're saying yes. Paul demonstrates that in his own testimony, in his own life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26, Paul says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. And I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. In another passage, he says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for this life and the next. So Paul is clearly aware that in his own experience of sanctification, in his own experience of living the Christian life, there's times when we must say no and build the wall. But then there's times when we must say yes and, and follow God in earnest. Back to 2 Peter chapter 1, right after this verse 4, he says in verse 5, for this reason, because you've been given this divine nature, you've been made a partaker of it, for this very reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, I like the fact that I, I think many of you noticed that since we have moved over here, it's about that time that I started using the English Standard Version, ESV, instead of the NIV. And I, and I did it simply because 
I was ready personally for a different kind of translation to sharpen my understanding also, but it was my Bible that Alf Bell gave me was falling apart. <laughs> and, um, and I just wanted to put it on the shelf and, and keep it and, and I get, a, get a new Bible. And, I, and I'm glad in the sense that this time around, I didn't like the NIV translation when it said, to add to your faith. And then it listed all these virtues. And why is it that it said add? Well, it meant add, but it really more means supplement. Because adding to our faith sounds like we could be saying, yeah, God, your grace is great and it's, it's good, but I need to add to it so that I'm right with you all the time. That's not what the NIV means, but that's the way it sounded. I like the word supplement. Because in this text, in the ESV, he says that make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, the Canadian Health Organization, Health Canada, tells us that if we eat a healthy diet, we don't need any nutritional supplements. And yet, I, I saw a statistic that said, from four years ago, 2015, 45.3% of Canadians take nutritional supplements. Now, Peter says, you need to supplement your faith. Okay, It's not that God's grace and all that He has given us through this divine nature is not enough. It just is simply that you cannot expect to be passive in the living out of the Christian life and in the bearing of fruit. You must supplement your faith with virtue, with the actual activity of drawing near and abiding and living for Christ. So, so these are the signs of life that God will show you. And the Scripture that is before us in 2 Peter is, is very, much like, very much like the fruit of the Spirit as he lists seven virtues. By the way, some of you, some of you did you take grade 6 science? Um, and did you, in your grade 6 science, recall Mrs. Grin? Put your hand up if you know who Mrs. Gren is. G-R-E-N. Nobody. I guess I had a wacko science teacher or my kids did or something. Mrs. Gren, the seven letters of Mrs. Gren are the seven indications of life. Okay? In, in biology. So movement, respiration, sensitivity, growth, reproduction, excretion, and nutrition. Mrs. Gren. <laughs> I can't believe I'm the only one. <laughs> okay, I want to tell you, tell me afterwards how you learned the, this, this idea of the characteristics of living things. And so in the physical realm, if those are the seven characteristics of living things, what Paul is doing and what Peter is doing in Scriptures that list all these virtues of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., or of self-control and other things. It, he's listing that if you have the divine nature in you and you are living and walking in the Holy Spirit, then the signs of the spiritual life should look like this. You should have these things evidenced in your life. Not only should you want these things, these new desires that God has given you, this new nature, but you should actually be able to produce this fruit. So that 
that you can love way beyond what you used to be able to love. You can forgive way beyond what you could normally forgive. You can have self-control way beyond what you personally would be able to, to, to control in your own strength. And so we won't go through the various the list here, but in verses 5 to 7, you'll notice that it's listed faith, uh, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. At the end of which, Paul, Peter says, and if these qualities are yours, and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the epigenosis, this knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whoever lacks these qualities, if you do not have these qualities, then they are nearsighted and blind and have forgotten that they've been cleansed of past sin. And so we have a responsibility, don't we? Peter ends in verse 10 by saying, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It's a challenge, isn't it? And we can't do it alone. That's why Paul, when he writes these lists, he's writing not to individuals, he's writing to churches. He's writing to groups that have congregated in various cities at the time in the, in the ancient Near East, and he's, he's writing them because they need each other to live out this fruit. And I want to encourage you this morning, as you think about September, today is September 1st, as you think about the, the year that is ahead of you and, and what God might be calling you to and how He wants you to live, and you know, you know intuitively the, the hard spots in your life of living for Jesus. You know intuitively the things you're going to face that will be hard, where self-control will be needed. Why don't you make a decision today? I'm going to talk to so-and-so about this because I need help in this area of self-control. And if you've been searching your heart this morning and coming up feeling guilty because maybe you don't have a very good report card on self-control, well, boy, I can sure feel that on some days. I can feel that. I don't want this message to land on you like a stone, heavy and cold. I want you to know that Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, He's the same in your yesterday and in your today and in your forever. If you've opened your life to Him, He's the same. And that means the grace that He gives is the same for you, regardless of your performance and self-control. And if you come to the table of the Lord this morning, and if you come to this table and you feel absolutely condemned, you need to hear the voice of Jesus saying to you today again to you, you know what, you're my child and I forgive you. Based on the blood of Christ, you're forgiven. So let no one not come to this table this morning based on the fact that they just feel an absolute pygmy in spiritual stature. They feel so weak. They feel like they haven't lived out the fruit. Don't let that hinder you from coming because there's fresh bread this morning and there's fresh grace this morning for us through Jesus Christ. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then I'm going to invite Pastor Sehun to join me at the table as we lead in the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we thank You now, Lord Jesus, for Your Word. We, we sit under it because we know that it is truth. It has authority. Your Holy Spirit wrote it and sent it 
to us. And if we're going to live spirit fruit and spirit lives, Lord, we know we need You in a deep and desperate way. And so would You meet us this morning and every person here as the hearts are being examined, as we get ready to receive the bread and the cup, Lord, would You help us to recognize that nothing, nothing in ourselves furnishes us or equips us or authorizes us to come near to You in this holy place. Only the grace of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Christ can, can make us fit. So Spirit of God, we ask You to speak to us now. We pray in Your name. It is our pleasure this morning to join as two congregations and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. 오늘 두 교회가 같이 성찬식을 예배를 함께 드리고 또 성찬식에 참여할 수 있어서 너무 감사합니다. And across denominational lines, this is not a Baptist nor a Presbyterian table. This is the Lord's table. 우리가 교파는 비록 다르지만 베프티스트, 프레스비테리안 서로 다르지만 이것은 주님께서 우리들에게 베푸시는 성찬식입니다. And even as we've heard in the message today, we are not equipped to come to this table because of our own merit. 우리 자신의 힘으로 주님의 성찬식에 참여할 수 있는 것이 아닙니다. It is because of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're here. 오직 주님께서 우리들에게 믿음을 주시고 주님의 은혜로 인하여서 이렇게 성찬식에 참여할 수 있게 된 것입니다. And so Friends, whether you're from our church or not, if you know Jesus Christ and His grace, we invite you to partake of the elements today. Uh, 주님의 은혜로 우리가 성찬식에 이렇게 초대를 받아서 떡과 잔을 받게 되었습니다. We read in the scripture that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and then He took cup and He gave thanks. Uh, 주님께서 제자들로 인해서 배반당해서 붙잡히시던 날 바로 그날 주님께서 이렇게 성찬식을 베푸셨습니다. Let us also give thanks right now. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for this table and we thank you for your son. A simple prayer, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we come to this table now confessing our sin, acknowledging our need, asking for spiritual sustenance and supplement so that we can live in the fullness of your spirit. Hear each prayer today. Amen. Amen.